Why are police photographing our license plates? What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Welcome to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando. I have a special guest today, Attorney Jeff Edward Fogel. Uh, Jeff has been on my Charlottesville This Week show, but I'm particularly happy, given his reputation and his history, his legal history of defending, uh, well, defender of the rights of, for those who are too often ignored or neglected by the system. Jeff Fogel recently announced, outside Charlottesville City Hall, no less, that he's running for Charlottesville's Commonwealth Attorney. Jeff Fogel's first step would be, of course, to get the Democratic nomination to accomplish that. Attorney Jeff Fogel is challenging Charlottesville's current assistant Commonwealth's attorney, Joe Platania. Jeff, as I started to say earlier, I, I so appreciated your being one of my first guests on Charlottesville this week. But given your reputation for fighting the good fight, I'm especially happy to welcome you to the Reasonable Voices Talk Radio Show for the first time. So, welcome, Jeff, and how are you? I'm fine, especially those nice words on your part. Well, you've earned them all, I, you know. I know we want to talk local Charlottesville, but if it isn't too much to ask, what are your thoughts about this whole back and forth on a ban, a travel ban, if you will, uh, that the new president has launched? Any uh, thoughts about that? Well, it's almost too easy to have thoughts about it. Mm. I mean, just look at what the rest of the world is reacting to uh, in terms of this, and you can see how it puts us in a terrible position, the, the country that claims to uh, to open its arms to the poor, huddled masses yearning to be free, yes. the country in the world that is built on immigration, more so than any other country in the history of the world, probably, mm. all of a sudden turning its back entirely on that history and trying to identify, and I don't care what the, the, the government says, it's not about religion, uh, how could it not be when... Christians are giving you a preference. Yes. Uh, but I was glad to see that it was a Republican judge yes. appointed by George Bush yes. who, uh, who struck it down nationwide, as well as the other two judges who struck it down. Mm -hmm. So it looks like he's going to have trouble putting that through. And, uh, of course, from the perspective of most people who've looked at it, it's not going to make any difference anyway in terms of the potential for terrorism. 
Well, that's the thing. I mean, as I always say, which is perhaps less of an argument than, than the one that you and the marchers and the judges are making. But to me, uh, building a wall along the Mexican border, when was the last time we had a Mexican terrorist? Uh, you know, I mean, it's just so it's just so in our face. Let us have a few headlines. Let us show we can sign executive orders. I, I, I don't know. I I. The showmanship about it offends me because I'm in show business. You know, in addition to media, I have a show business background. It just offends me. Anyway, all right, enough of me. Thank you for that input, though. What's the, there is a connection, of course, because, uh, uh, and we'll get more to Donald Trump because I think he sort of was the inspiration. But what's your initial campaign plan of action? Are you, uh, are you going to debate or town hall forums or what? what's in store? Do you know yet? Yes, I've talked to my adversary, and by the way, his name is pronounced Blatania. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and we plan to do a series of, I don't want to call them debates, although they will be sort of debates, mm-hmm. forums yes. in wherever we can in the community, so that it's not just a question of our laying out what we think the office should be doing, but of listening to people from the community about what they want out of criminal justice, and also <clears throat> recognizing that unless people have had contact with the criminal justice system or someone close to them has, Mm. usually people know very, very little about the system of so-called justice that we have. Yes. From the point of view of the police or the prosecutors or the judges or grand juries or petty juries or um, correctional systems or jails or probation or parole. I mean, the, the panoply of things involved in the criminal justice system is broad, and therefore its impact has been broad. Mm. And so I'm hoping that this campaign, regardless of who wins, will open up this discussion in the community because there are issues I think that the community should be weighing in on. Yes. Uh, I think, for example, the war on drugs. Yes. We've been a major contributor to mass incarceration. Well, that was a political decision. Initially, um, I think it was Richard Nixon who mentioned the word, and then it was carried on. Yes. But it was carried on as a political issue. Okay. Now the question is, why aren't the people of Charlottesville entitled to weigh in on what they think their community's contribution to the so-called war on drugs is? Mm. Well, it hasn't been able to. And we do have a police department that seems to be committed to the war on drugs. Now, if the community doesn't want that, why should the police department be allowed to do it? And why isn't the community consulted? So I hope to open up all of those issues, as I said, and I hope to see that through regardless of who wins this campaign. I guess I have to admit, even though I've interviewed the uh, former police chief of Charlottesville and, and, the, and the current uh, city manager and the current mayor, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I'm a New Yorker and live in D.C. most of the time, but um, I don't know. That, I think you're absolutely right. I don't know about the criminal justice system, uh, at least not in Charlottesville, but I do know that Virginia is one of the leading uh, uh, well, America has more prisoners in prisons than anyone else. But this mass incarceration, explain to us more about that and uh, tell us well, about it. Well, it's being discussed a lot uh-huh. uh, and across the political spectrum as well. Yes. Because it's gotten to the point where fiscal conservatives are very upset about how much money is being spent on, on the penal system. I mean, it's the largest budget of any agency, for example, in Virginia, spending over a billion dollars a year. Yes. And as I looked at some figures nationally, there's a wide range of figures from $80 billion as 
as much as $200 billion a year. Of course, some of that has to be spent in any event, so mm -hmm. it's unfair to attribute all of that. But when you look at mass incarceration, you have to look at what happened uh, in the 80s and 90s when we started to increase sentences, when politicians thought they could get elected and were successful at getting elected by claiming that the country was amok and we needed yes. to put all kinds of money into locking people up and that that was the answer to the problem. Yes. Now, I'm as you said, and, and it's pretty well known now, the United States represents 5% of the world's population, mm. but 25% of its prisoners. Wow. And I love some, what um, former Senator Jim Webb said. Mm -hmm. Jim Webb said, listen, we're either the most evil country in the world, and I don't believe that, mm -hmm. and I don't either, or there's something amiss with the system. Exactly. So it's pretty clear there's something amiss with the system, so that we've got people like Orrin Hatch, you've got people like um, Newt Gingrich, uh, you've got people even like Paul Ryan fighting for reform of the federal system, mm. reducing sentencing, eliminating mandatory minimum sentencing that they have found is not a successful means of uh, stopping crime, and it's certainly some of the most expensive uh, problems that we have developed in the prison system. Yes. We've got coalitions that involve the Koch brothers and the NAACP and the ACLU. You've got a, an organization called Right on Crime, R-I-G-H-T, mm -hmm. uh, staffed by uh, well-known conservatives looking at these issues also. So it's important for people to see that this is not a partisan issue. No. It cuts across the board, and it has to do with lots of things. On the one hand, fiscal issues that everybody's concerned about in terms of not having money to do things in the society. Mm -hmm. But you have to also look at its impact because it's been disproportionately impactful on minorities. And that is to say, we look at it and we know that one in three young African-American males between 18 and 24, 25, are under the jurisdiction of the criminal justice system. Wow. And that's an extraordinary number, one in three, and that so many kids see that as their life. Yes. And of course, if their parents have been in jail, we know there's a greater likelihood that they will be in jail. Yes. And we, we see a history here where men are removed from a home. Now, when those men come out of prison, uh, if their family lives in public housing, they can't live there because there's a prohibition. They can't get jobs. Mm. They can't get housing in the private market. It's a very, very difficult life. And people also have to remember that the victims of crime are not simply the people who have been physically harmed or financially harmed. Mm -hmm because the families of the people that we're putting in prison are also victims. Yes. Uh, they are innocent. Now, uh, they weren't directly harmed by what the offender did, but the process of the criminal justice system has to look at those families as well, as well and recognize their victimization. Yes. Uh, and that we need as a society to make sure that they're not victimized because we don't want their children to become criminals. Exactly, either. exactly. And give them a chance. So we have to be looking at two things, in my view. Mass incarceration, that's the number of people going in and the length of their sentences. Mm -hmm. And secondly, the impact that it's had on minority communities. In Virginia, 20% of the population is African-American. Mm -hmm. 60, 60% 60 of the prison population is African-American. That's an extraordinary number wow. compared to the actual population. So we've got to look at that. We've got to find out why that's happening. We know some things. Some things started to get corrected. People may recall that on the federal level, 
there was a great disparity in sentencing between so-called crack cocaine and powder cocaine, mm -hmm. which seemed to be culturally related, uh, and that that's being eliminated, thank God. Yes. Uh, President Obama, to his credit, I think released probably a couple of thousand people mm -hmm. who were there based in, on unconscionable sentences having to do with drug offenses. Uh, many of them were lifetime sentences that were required by law. Mm -hmm. So we've got to look at those two things. And, of course, in the middle of it, we've got to make sure that there's justice. Yes. Justice for a defendant, and also communities are entitled to expect safety in their communities. Mm -hmm. But what's good right now is that we've got some of the lowest crime rates we've had in decades. Yes. And that's true nationally, and it's true right here in Charlottesville. And, and yet our prisons are, and jails are still packed. Exactly. Yeah. Our local jail is overcrowded. Yes. And much of that has also to do with people awaiting trial who can't afford to get out simply because they don't have the money to get out on bail. Mm. So this is an excellent time, it seems to me, for people to recognize, number one, we are safer than we've been in a very long time. Mm -hmm. the, the putting people in prison for a long period of time simply does not have an impact on public safety, costing us a fortune and destroying lives, both the victims and the victims, as I said before, being the families and loved ones of those who are in prison. You, you know, Jeff, when I was a kid, uh, you, you if you saw anything, you know, it was James Cagney in, in jail or whatever, but uh, the claim was that uh, prisoners were being rehabilitated. And a few years ago, I did some investigative reporting on this and found that that rehabilitation, this may be a couple of decades ago now, but they were teaching them skills that were no longer applicable uh, in today's world. They weren't being taught about computers. They were taught on typewriters, for instance, was something I found out about 10 years ago, I think. Do we have any real rehabilitation going on when people are in prison or are they just in these cells and get to walk out in the in the fenced in yard once a day or whatever what what has anything well, changed there is some going on but much of it is dependent on the prisoner himself or herself uh getting engaged in it there are some college classes available people can take correspondence classes Good. there are some programs that are teaching people some things you're right much of it is anachronistic, mm, um, mm -hmm. but part, part of it you have to recognize is that the prison system also produces property that's mm. being used in the prison system or mm. being sold. So it's a money maker mm -hmm. in that sense as well. Mm. But we're not going to accomplish that so long as the prisons are so crowded. Uh, and, and it's the height of hypocrisy to call all of these prisoners correctional centers. Right? Yes. It sounds very nice. Uh, that they're a correctional center, but I don't know why we don't just call them a prison, because you're right, there's very little going on. If we could reduce our prison population, and boy, there's an awful lot of literature around that we can, indicating that we can reduce it anywhere from a quarter to a half, mm. then we might have the resources to apply to the others who are in prison to try to do something. And but we also have to reduce it on the other end. We've eliminated parole. That's another factor that's leading to mass incarceration mm. and to the incarceration of people who are going to be in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Goodness. And, of course, that's going to cost the prison system a fortune in the way of medical costs and hospice costs and so on. And the parole board, although we do have what's called geriatric release here in Virginia, almost nobody is being let out in geriatric release. So it seems to me we need to start looking at some other systems that have been very effective and they've been 
mostly in Europe, mm -hmm. which is the closest thing sort of culturally you can get to the United States. They've reduced, the, you know, or they don't put people in prison for more than 20 or 25 years. They actually have rehabilitation programs, mm. some, many of which work, but we don't hear an awful lot about recidivism there. We don't hear even mass murderers are let out after 20 years. And we don't hear stories about them recommitting murder. Mm. I'm not suggesting 20 is the absolute maximum, mm -hmm. but we should be moving in that direction. There's no reason for us to be keeping people in their 80s and 90s in prison. That's astounding. I, I didn't even think of that. Like you say, we don't know what else judicial and prison systems are doing. And I certainly had no idea. Well, it just didn't occur to me. Tell us, where do these private prisons fit in all of this, the things you're telling us? Well, the, of course, the worst thing about private prisons is they become private lobbyists to put people in prison. Yes. Uh, because their, their goal, as with the goal of any private entity, is to make money. Yes. To make money this year. So you've got a dual problem. You've got them lobbying for more laws and for longer sentences. And then you have private prisons trying to run a prison at the least possible cost in order to increase profit. Mm. It just doesn't make sense that a public function like that yes. could be performed on the basis of profit and not on the basis of public safety. Now, we should be thinking about it that way. And the private prisons are in addition to what you were already discussing in our public facilities, yes? Yes. So it's not well, like... Wow. We only have one privately run prison here in Virginia, mm -hmm. but much of the health care system is run privately, and much of the food service system is run privately. Okay. We're going to take a short break. It's a lot to take in. I think we all need to catch our breath here. But uh, when we come back, we want to talk about our guests' relationship in the past with the Charlottesville Police Department and a few things that have happened specifically here in Virginia that I'd like to hear what Jeff Vogel has to say. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. Blessed are the films that don't take themselves too seriously while packing detail and relevance into a fully entertaining experience. Viva La Libertad is a wonderful comedy born of the political disillusionment and despair familiar to many, here set in the world-weary political arena of modern Italy. It's the preposterously comic tale of opposition party leader Enrico Olivieri, who is bone-tired of playing the game. At a critical moment for his failing party, he can take no more and goes underground in France in the home of his now-married former lover. Meanwhile, until they can locate their wayward leader, the politicians decide to replace Enrico with his twin brother, Giovanni. It should work. Giovanni is a depressive with no ability to live in the mainstream world on his own. What could go wrong? As it turns out, things go right. Giovanni, uncontrollable and a bit mad with pharmaceutically-induced optimism, gives interviews and playfully speaks blunt truth. He paints hopeful pictures of a thriving future. In the absence of normal political self-loathing rhetoric, everything becomes possible. The people rise up in support. But will Enrico come back? Viva la Libertà is a rich comedic discovery with a sensuous European feel, refreshing at its very core. Viva la Libertà. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Find us on the web at IndieFilmMinute.com. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices Talk Radio Show. My guest today is Charlottesville attorney Jeff E. Fogel, 
who is running to be the Democratic nomination to run as the Charlottesville's Commonwealth attorney. Jeff and I have had quite a conversation already in our first segment, but I do want to ask, when we think back, because this is how and why I in initially invited Jeff to be on Charlottesville this week is because uh, he's an attorney you hear about. I mean, he's out there uh, doing, fighting the good fight, as I said earlier. And sometimes in fighting the good fight, he he's sort of been um, on the other side of uh, facing, of the table facing the Charlottesville Police Department. And I'm just wondering, I want to talk about a number of issues and how that might affect your campaign and indeed your, your um, the result of that campaign. But what about, tell us about your experience and how you feel uh, specifically as it applies to the Charlottesville Police Department and the stop and search, frisk and search for marijuana possession and other things. What do you think about that? Well, I, you know what I think about yes, that. Yes, I do. But... Uh, you know, I... I continually monitor the statistics and the statistics pretty consistently show over the last three or four years that anywhere between 70 and 80 percent of the people being stopped on the street are african-american yes and that the amount of um, criminal activity that has been uncovered as a result of these street stops is ridiculously low Mm. Uh, i think it was 12 percent last year of all stops resulted in finding some, you know, illegal activity Mm -hmm. and nothing that serious. Yes. And then, of course, you could see from those statistics that you're more likely to find something on somebody who's white than somebody who's black, yet we're stopping black people much more than white people. Mm -hmm. Um, You know that I have sought access to narratives. I've sued the city to get those narratives unsuccessfully. So, yes, it's been an area that I'm concerned about. Frankly, it's been an area I've been concerned about for 45 years. Yes. And it's a national uh, problem, but it's just so shocking. That, I don't know, maybe because I come from New York, but it's just so shocking to me that it's a problem in Charlottesville. Right. Well, it's not the problem that it was in New York. No. Uh, I will tell you that. Okay. You're not getting officers that muster being told to stop as many people as they conceivably can. Mm. Uh, I think it's really more like a hangover. And the hangover really is, and it's interesting, if you go back and read the... Um, report of the, what was called the Kerner Commission yes. in 1968 after a series of uh, urban rebellions or riots, mm-hmm. and it talked about policing. And one of the things it talked about, about policing was the role that stop and frisk plays in making people in communities, poor communities, feel that the police are an occupying power. Mm-hmm. Now, I think there's a general recognition across the board in the field of criminal justice that the police have to get away from that notion of being warriors or uh, occupiers, and they have to become guardians of communities instead and have a different attitude. I'm convinced that our new police chief has that attitude. Oh. The extent to which that he can can, uh, get his entire staff is a different question, and I'll be interested to see how that plays itself out. I'm glad you... It's hardly the worst place. Uh, you know, but like most urban areas, it has a severe problem of police who are not related to the community, police who do not live in the community, mm. and police who do not look like many of the people that they're policing. Gotcha. And hopefully that's going to change as well. But as, as Commonwealth attorney, you're certainly in a position to carefully review any case that comes in that results from a search or a seizure to ensure that they're meeting at least the minimal guidelines of the Constitution. And that's something else people have to learn. When a 
Supreme Court says this is what the Fourth Amendment means, mm-hmm. that is the bottom line. The, the Bill of Rights is the minimal protection mm. that we afford our citizens. Some other states, some other localities have afforded people greater protections than mm. the Constitution requires. Mm-hmm. And given the fact that it's been a few hundred years since they adopted the Bill of Rights, we also should be looking at advancing rights, not simply relying on the lowest common denominator. And so it's possible, for example, to look at stop and frisk, which is governed by a standard of reasonable suspicion, Mm -hmm. and apparently not a very good standard if you look at the statistics by the Charlottesville Police Department. And you may want to say, I'm not going to prosecute cases that don't have a probable cause standard. Mm which, after all, is the only word that's referenced in the Constitution. There is nothing in the Constitution that talks about reasonable suspicion. It only talks about probable cause. And that was a made-up phrase by the Supreme Court. So it would be very easy to say we're going to rely on what the Fourth Amendment says, which is you have to have probable cause. Mm -hmm. So the point is, though, that there are many things that the prosecutor can do that can influence how the police department conducts their investigations Mm. uh, and and do things. I think I can work with uh, certainly the police chief. I certainly think I can work with any police officer who believes in the Constitution, believes that suspects have the right uh, under the Constitution, and that treats everybody, regardless of what they've done, with human dignity. And if there are officers who don't treat people with human dignity, who don't believe in the Constitution, I will clearly not get along with those people, and I will hope to to be able to assist in getting rid of them from law enforcement. Well, you, you certainly anticipated uh, my next three questions. <laughs> and then, no, 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 that's fine. Because I was going to ask you, you know, uh, given how you've stood up for those who uh, many don't stand up for, who need the protection of the Constitution and, and the, the city police as well. But I was wondering how you got along with Al Thomas. And you sort of alluded to him. He is the new chief of police in Charlottesville, does he bring a, a an, an attitude you feel, I think is what you're saying, that makes uh, reforms possible? Because I think it's a big deal, as you have pointed out, that police have, in some cases, self-redefined themselves, but but also uh, other there are other forces at play here that have redefined a police force as a military extension, as a occupying force, and it, I mean, I don't expect us to go back to where everybody's walking the beat and knows everybody's name, but how did we get here? How did we get well, We got here because people didn't think right? and didn't focus on reality and evidence. Mm. You know, there was a period of time in policing where all of a sudden the measure of whether a police department was successful was simply the amount of time it took them to respond to a call. Oh. And that was the only measure they had mm. of effectiveness of the police department. Now we know that that's not a sufficient measure, mm-hmm. that if we just put people in cars, they lose contact with the community, they don't get the cooperation of the community, and therefore they're hindered in their own investigations as well. And, of course, we see what's happened in the last couple of years with the shootings of unarmed, uh, you know, principally black men, yes, uh, yes. although white people have been killed too, yes. and, and black women as well, yes. uh, and that many of those have occurred under circumstances where they should not have occurred, and some of that has to do with the great cultural divide between some of the police and the communities in which they're policing. So we've got to bridge that gap, particularly since those folks are not coming from the community, they're not living in those communities, we have to bridge that gap. 
you know, the president appointed a commission, the former president, right. rather, yes. Obama, yes. a commission on the 21st century policing. Yes. And it's a wonderful document. It talks about how to change the culture of policing so that it will be able to communicate and work with the community because we've got to solve problems together. The measure of effective police work is not the number of arrests they make or the number of convictions they get. Mm. It's the number of problems that they help solve. And we've got to be focused together, the community and the police, on solving problems, not running up records uh, of arrests. Mm -hmm. And I think the police chief understands that and is prepared to move in that direction, but we'll see. And I certainly hope to participate in that process were I to be, even if I'm not elected, mm. I want to participate in that process because we also need the police. Yes. You and we need that protection, but it's got to be done in a way that's not only consistent with the Constitution, but that recognizes that the police department are public servants. Yes. That they work for the public. They are not occupiers of the public. Mm. So, you know, I think all of those things, uh, there's a great groundswell, I think, of feeling about this across the civilian population and an increasing recognition of all of these things among uh, police hierarchies and criminal justice people. Yes. So I have some, I have some hope there. Um, unfortunately, we were looking at some things being done by the national administration, which, given the new attorney general, are just not going to be done anymore. Mm. And we've got to. That's one of the reasons why I decided to run and look locally uh, and see if we can build this from the bottom up rather than looking always to the federal government from the top down. Exactly. Something that conservatives have been telling us to do for a long time. That's true. That's very true. You know, after the tragedy with the State Senator Krieg's son and, and, and of course, the senator himself, he, he and former Albemarle County Commonwealth Attorney Denise Lunsford uh, started pushing for police training regarding distinguishing between criminal behavior and mental health behavior, and that's certainly a, a national issue. And I attended a few forums. I'm just wondering, as a Charlottesville Commonwealth attorney, what are your thoughts about, well, jail versus the public health system and how we can connect the two in some kind of uh, reformation, I guess? are getting instruction on this issue because yes. we know when we look at jail and prison populations how many people there suffer from mental illness yes whether or not it was the cause for the criminal activity for which they were convicted i've been looking at a model that says that if the police can recognize problems of mental illness if the police can recognize problems of substance abuse mm. why bring that person into the criminal justice system can't we work out a system where they take them directly to the service provider? There is something in going on in Seattle called LEAD. It's called Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion. Mm. We talk about diversion programs where we, someone comes to court, they get arraigned, and they get diverted to community service or something like that. Mm. But there's an opportunity to do this without even having to involve the criminal justice system and therefore the potential problems that exist within the system. Now, I'd like to see something like that. We have to do an assessment of our resources to handle the mentally ill and substance abuses as well. Uh, and then we have to recognize, and, and this is one of the things that Chief Thomas said when he spoke to the city council. Uh -huh. If you want to reduce crime, certainly at this point, where it's a, at the lowest level it's been, as I said, in decades, you need to address the socioeconomic conditions that cause crime. And that's a very broad term, and it has to do with mental illness, has to do 
poverty. It has to do with great disparities in wealth, lack of resources, lack of an education, and so on. We can look at the people in prison and you can see who they are. Mm. They're poor, predominantly black, low educational level, people mm. with limited skills who didn't have much of an opportunity to succeed in the society. Well, if you don't have an opportunity to succeed in the society that, and you're poor, that may lead you to criminal activity. Yes. And it doesn't take a genius to see that. Yeah. So why are we spending all of this money just warehousing people when the money can be spent actually dealing with the conditions that are creating the crime and dealing with the people who actually engage in criminal activity in the appropriate way? For example, the people with mental health issues have to go to the public health system. And we should be doing that with substance abusers, too. I'm very disappointed in the public health system for not stepping up mm. and abdicating their responsibility to the criminal justice system to deal with substance abuse. It's crazy. What does the criminal justice system know about it? Exactly. Public health officials should be stepping up and saying, no, that's our bailiwick. Yes. Give us the money. Don't give it to the police. Don't give it to the prosecutor. Don't give it to the prison system. Give it to us and we'll actually deal with the people. But unfortunately, that's not happening. So it's going to take advocacy, and that's certainly something that I don't shy away yeah, from. I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You know, speaking of advocacy, how does a Commonwealth attorney choose or not choose to get involved in this tug of war of legalities between Governor Terry McAuliffe and the Virginia Supreme Court regarding voting rights restoration for former felons? Well, the only role really a Commonwealth attorney would have would be as, a, as an advocate mm -hmm. on behalf of former felons. Uh, it's possible to, to, you know, to file an amicus brief, for example, mm -hmm. that kind of litigation is going on. There's other important litigation. This litigation at the Legal Aid Justice Center brought about fines mm -hmm. and losing your license. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have so many people driving on suspended licenses simply because they can't afford to pay fines. And obviously that's going to be mostly poor people. And if you talk about poor people, you're talking mostly about minorities. Mm -hmm. So a lawsuit's been filed. The state's resisting it, even though there is a bill pending in the legislature to try and do something about it. But, you know, from my experience here, that's another critical one that has to be changed. Mm. I'd love to see a parole be brought. I think the governor's moved in the right direction on that. But he's got a lot, a lot of resistance from people in the legislature. Yes. I just, but then, you know, he's got somebody in the legislature like the majority leader, you know, the Speaker of the Senate, yes. who wants to decriminalize marijuana. That's extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. And as I've said in my platform, I would not prosecute people for simple possession of marijuana. Hmm. What are we doing? Why are we wasting our time? We've got serious crime to deal with, and to the extent we deal with issues like that, we're not dealing with what needs to be dealt with. Okay. You know, we always have to remember, this... The, the president of the United States, Obama, his predecessor, his predecessor's predecessor, all admitted to smoking marijuana. Mm, mm -hmm. So did at least Justice Thomas on the Supreme Court. Mm. The only difference is they didn't get caught. But mm. if any of them had gotten caught, Obama wouldn't have been president. Clinton wouldn't have been president. George Bush wouldn't have been president. Clarence Thomas wouldn't be on the Supreme Court. What's the crime? The crime's getting caught. Mm. So we can, <laughs> we can do something about that. That's just preposterous. You know, it seems to me, like other hot-button issues, that the law comes at a certain segment of the population, certainly, which includes women, by the way, but it comes at problems that we have, social issues that are before us, 
like a like bookends, like a vice that's closing in from both sides. You you make the you don't help the people not become potential criminals, and at the same time, if they become criminals, you keep them in jail ad infinitum. So how how do we and how how do you? What's your hope to be able to make a change in at least the city of Charlottesville? and significantly reduce the number of people we're sending to prison and jail and get a lot of the people who are sitting in our local jail because they don't have bail out awaiting trial. Uh They're entitled to reasonable bail under the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution, and there are people there who just because they can't afford it. So something's got to happen with that, particularly since we know that people who are in jail prior to trial are much more likely to get convicted, and if convicted, much more severely than those who are out awaiting trial. So we've got to do that. Uh, If we don't prosecute marijuana cases, we can reduce the number of people coming into the system. If we're able to divert, even from the law enforcement point of view, people with mental health issues and substance abuse issues, we will reduce the number of people coming to court, and we will reduce the disproportionality, the racial disproportionality Mm. that exists. If we do not follow some of these crazy mandatory minimum sentencing laws, we can reduce the amount of time people actually spend in prison. So that if they have to go to prison, it's for a more realistic time. That those people who don't need to go for extended periods of time to prison should be charged with misdemeanors rather than felonies. Mm. Because the felonies is the thing that destroys your life. Exactly. Lose your right to vote, you lose all kinds of potential for benefits, Uh, You can't get unemployment, you can't get food stamps, but if it's a misdemeanor, you can. So there's much opportunity for for taking cases where people shouldn't be serving more than, say, a year or 18 months and making them misdemeanor cases rather than felony. So as I said, we can cut down on the number of people coming into the system, we can cut down on the number of people going to jail and prison, Mm. and we can take a close look at the war on drugs and see what kind of impact that's having both in terms of the numbers of people being charged and the racial impact of that. Because we've seen cases where people being charged were simply drug addicts, and it's just crazy. Mm. The system isn't designed to deal with it. We don't need the system, such an expensive system, to deal with that when we need a system that's going to help people with their substance abuse. So I think there are very specific things that we can do that would reduce the number of people coming into the system, reduce the number of people going to prison, reduce the number of people being charged with felonies, and reduce the sentencing that's far in excess of what's needed or appropriate even for punishment. Excellent. Attorney Jeff Edward Fogel. Tell us, uh, Jeff, we must run, but um, how does one volunteer to be to work on your campaign uh, do you i guess a website facebook page whatever you've yeah, got no the website okay yeah, we need that we need money we need everything okay uh, the, the website is fogel f-o-g-e-l four f-o-r c-c-a charlottesville commonwealth attorney that's fogel for c-c-a dot u-s excellent all right then well thank you we've been talking to a charlottesville attorney jeff edward fogel who is running for the nomination, Democratic nomination, to and then to be elected as the Charlottesville's Commonwealth Attorney. Jeff, thank you so very much for being on the show today. We wish you all the best, and great Thanks talking to you again. Thanks a lot, Marcella. Bye now. Bye. Stay with us, as we'll be right back with a final comment from The Reasonable Voice.
And now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. Some subjects are uncomfortable to contemplate. This doesn't make them less fascinating, perhaps even a bit more so. XXY is the coming-of-age story of Alex, a 15-year-old intersex child. She was born with XXY syndrome. That is, she has the chromosomes and the physical characteristics of both sexes. Lest this sound like a morality tale, that is certainly not the case with this touching and challenging first film by Argentinian writer and director Lucia Puenzo. Alex's father thought of his child at birth as perfect. He did not want the condition addressed through surgery, which could lead to serious repercussions. Respecting her uniqueness, he moved the family to remote Uruguay so that Alex could grow up in a less threatening environment. Alex has stopped taking the hormones which had been guiding toward the feminine and is beginning to struggle with sexual identity. Her mother invites a surgeon and his family to visit to subtly explore the surgical options. The surgeon's son, also an adolescent, falls for Alex, who has feelings, confused feelings, for him as well. XXY has been greatly admired for its non-judgmental respect towards its subject. It's an honest exploration of the difficulty of difference. XXY. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Find us on the web at IndieFilmMinute.com. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard around the world. What I love about Donald J. Trump. No matter what we think about America's 45th POTUS, no matter his promises or our expectations for coal, steel, and manufacturing jobs flooding back into America before our climate denial floats Key Alago out to sea, no matter alternative facts by Conway and Spicer applause signs flailing us into the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil from a callous Donald as much as I do the indifference of the Trump. Regardless how often caught on camera a Congress and K in Main Streets have mouthed, just give him a chance. No matter how many peaceful marches in union with unity are being ignored by those who revel in the rebellion of low information, notwithstanding how fast we're going with the flow of the lowest of the low, Donald Trump is blatantly transparent in his distractions, ably assisted by, though not the enemy of the American people, headlined grabbing media self-committed to repetitive parroting. What I love about Donald Trump is how he unabashedly builds on the baseless reality denial of his base, evidently having no shame in uttering utterly unscrupulous claims that outdo any groper's pleas for pleasure the night before his ship sails away. There is something masterfully twisted about the Don's reality show profile of a non-coherent worldview, including ever-present gesticulations clawing at the throat of Make America Great Again, scratching out the eyes of America first with his destruction of reason, his abandonment of intelligence, while proclaiming whites-only patriotism. Historically, both conservatives and liberals incorporate fringes, willing to sacrifice our future for a chance to solidify their version of the American dream, which allows Trump's conduct unbecoming a commander-in-chief, but disallows any excuse for the 60 to 70 percent more rational Americans to trounce on this self-evident truth. 
we can never go back to before. I tolerate our Bill of Rights tolerating he who slipped off his rocker, descending a tower escalator, being elected by longings for yesteryear, even if it's a coal-ash shower. I tolerate those fearing the unknown so much they miss the brass ring offering new ways for a new New Deal. I even tolerate those unwilling to grasp an untried foothold in our recovering transformation from the great, too big to fail, recession to technological progression. I'm patient because perhaps too many of us, too desperate for anything too normal, were too easily distracted by tea-stained birthers, too obstructionists to stomach anything orchestrated by a Hawaiian president who was better at ending war than Nixon, better at waging war than Cheney, and better at negotiating global climate change effort and peaceful coexistence with countries having two centuries of reasons to mistrust us. To the degree Trump reminds the world, and we the people, of the ugly American, I thank him for inspiring liberal reform for a more perfect union to realign its humanity, from grassroots to the halls of racial and gender injustice toward all who immigrated onto native lands of Native Americans. Why do I appreciate such a vile, despicable dissembler? Every time Trump reviles any nation, berates any profession, vilifies any ethnicity, or wipes his bare bannon on our Bill of Rights, America glimpses this bit of perspective. Trump is the product of our ignored civic responsibilities, because being oblivious to the obvious is not blissful, but haunting. 1. ICE using national security to persecute immigrants. 2. The Espionage Act fronting for our shadow government. 3. The Patriot Act's anti-American actions. FBI domestic invasions, preserving NSA surveillance, protecting CIA black sites, defending drones for empire. Let's regain our Good Samaritan spirit, reclaim our out-of-many-one motto, and rejoin our better angels in flight instead of fright, agreeing to disagree without being deplorable, and to refrain from hero-worshipping the demigod du jour. Empowered by the courage of Gettysburg Address principles, armed with peacefully assemble in defense of a tattered statue of liberty promise, we can resist the program and the authentic enemy of the people to preserve the United States Constitution from a rogue like Trump. Thank you, and join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Com website. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.